Hello Blazers, welcome to episode 81 of UAB Green and Told, original release Monday, September 26th, 2022. UAB Green and Told gives us a chance to share stories from members of the UAB community. Want to check out previous episodes? Look us up online at alumni.uab.edu slash greenandtold on Spotify and the Apple Podcast app. While there, we'd love for you to leave a written review so more alumni can find us. I'm Greg Berry, a UAB alum and director of communications in the UAB Office of Alumni Affairs. Provocative, moving, and inspirational. Those three words have been used to describe Swapna Kakani's life story. You see, from birth, she has lived a life many of us would never be able to fathom. As she'll share, her normal was far from yours and mine. One year of age onwards, I have been fed by the IV and the feeding tube. Those early obstacles never really went away. As she'll explain, they persisted even during her undergraduate studies at UAB. I ended up having more surgery in the fall of my junior year, and I had to just change my whole course load at that point. But Swapna didn't let the rare disease she was born with define who she is. It's part of me. It's not going to drive me. It's not going to define me, but it's part of me. And I'm not going to let it be a burden, but rather how can I use it in a positive way, in a driving force. It's not every day you get a story like Swapna Kakani's. She was born with a rare disease and has persevered. We pick up her story at a young age as a book lover and somebody who loved school. I went to the same school from first grade through 12th grade, and I think that really shaped who I am today and really influenced what I do today as well as who I interact with, meaning this school was a private school, small. They kind of kept me safe in terms of my own chronic disease and respected my privacy. And some of my high school friends are are still my best friends today and and those who I hang out with today in Huntsville as as I'm here. At an early age, you were diagnosed with short bowel syndrome. You alluded to it just a few moments ago. What is short bowel syndrome? So short bowel syndrome is a rare GI disease where either you do not have all of your intestine uh, to absorb nutrients by mouth uh, and and, um, hydration by mouth, or uh, you also do not have the function of the intestine to absorb nutrients by mouth or hydration by mouth. There is a lot of etiologies, causes to short bowel syndrome. Even more rare is it to be born with a birth defect like I was, and then to have short bowel syndrome. That's even a smaller subset of the short bowel syndrome population. Other reasons people can get short bowel syndrome, we say anyone can get it, meaning you can be in a car accident and they have to take out a lot of your intestine, you can have short bowel syndrome, or a cancer, and to remove the cancer, they have to remove a lot of the intestine. I mean, the reasons are numerous, but the congenital defect, like I had, that is one category of etiology for short bowel syndrome. So how old were you when you were diagnosed with short bowel syndrome? 
specifically two days old. Two days old. Mm -hmm. So as a youngster, you obviously didn't know what was wrong. I mean, you couldn't comprehend. Even when you were four, five, six years old, you couldn't comprehend the enormity of the syndrome that you had. What limitations did you face growing up at an early age? Not very many. Uh, and surprisingly, I know people use the word challenges or limitations, and it really wasn't that many because we truly adapted. We had to adapt to this, well, I always say new normal, but there's really no normal. And so adapt to our own lifestyle. I, so date from birth, I have been dependent on uh, nutrition from a, an IV. Um, so a, a permanent catheter in my veins that is in my chest. And so that nutrition bypasses the GI tract. And so that allows me to be fed. And then I also have been dependent on nutrition through a feeding tube through the stomach, which sometimes is more commonly known. And the reason for both is, well, so if the gut isn't working completely, both anatomically and physiologically not working perfectly, the IV nutrition bypasses the GI tract. So we're, the, the child, adult is getting fed. But at the same time, that nutrition has its risks. And you hope to uh, achieve enteral autonomy um, is what, I, what we say, which like being able to be tube fed and or eat by mouth. So that's why you also, you've oftentimes you see uh, children with short bowel syndrome also being fed by a tube so that you're maximizing the gut that they do, we do have. So from day two of life, um, actually from year one, I wasn't fed by mouth my first year of life, only by IV. So from one year of age onwards, I have been fed by the IV and the feeding tube. So what that means is I went to school with my backpack, my nutritional backpack, and I would in the morning hook up to it, put the bag and the pump in the backpack and just go to school like anyone else and then come back, take it off, get a little break before bedtime. And then at bedtime would hook up to the feeding tube, but also the IV and hang that on the IV pole and get all my nutrients <laughs> almost at night. And then at 6 a.m. unhook uh, and go to school just like any other kid. However, I think some of the uh, things that a lot of people didn't see were the hospitalizations and the complications and even even I did not understand, never, and, and youth never really understood the gravity uh, of the disease and never understood the, uh, like, the chronicity of it. Really thought, you know, this will all go away, I, meaning IVs and tubes will all go away by the time I'm in middle school, by the time I'm in high school, by the time I'm in college. It really wasn't until 17 that I truly understood, oh, I'm going to be on IV nutrition probably for the rest of my life. That's how late it really took to to hit me. But the complications can include, so when you have an IV in your chest, a, a permanent IV, not, not the temporary ones that um, you can get in the ER or in the hospital, that can garner bacteria, that can get infected. So I have had 
26 infections of those central lines in just 32 years, and 25 of those were in my first 17 years. So I was in the hospital at least once a year for an IV line infection. And that can get serious because if um, it can get in the bloodstream, it can become sepsis, you have to treat as quickly as possible. So a lot of times the line has to be removed, but then that's your lifeline. I'm live, I, that is how I get fed. So they have to find another spot for the line. And I would be gone from school for a couple of days to a week at a time. And uh, I again, that's where that close-knit community of growing up in a small school where they would fax me my homework to the nursing nurses station, or I would be able to make up stuff when I got back. And I was just down this, I was just at Children's of Alabama, which at the time I thought is so far away. <laughs> but now when you become an adult and understand healthcare, two hours is, is nothing. <laughs> you went through a couple of dozen, more than a couple of dozen infections. And that's beyond any kind of surgeries. You went through multiple surgeries as well. When was the first surgery that you had to go through as a child? So that was day two of life. Okay. So day two, so that's when, you know, I was born in Huntsville and they saw something wrong in the ultrasound. And then once I was born, I wasn't taking, I wasn't even able to swallow my own uh, saliva and I was just kept on spitting up. So they could, they had the mindset and urgency to send me to Children's of Alabama immediately. And so that's where the surgeon opened me up and then was able to diagnose. Since that first one, day two of life, how many surgeries have you undergone? I say 66. Mm. Uh, at, I'm 32 years old and so 66, but that counts. That includes every new central line uh, or IV line. And so because of these infections or even the milestone of not needing it anymore, I've gone through 31 central lines in 32 years. Wow, that's just incredible to even think about because that's at least once a year with mm -hmm. that, at least twice a year on average, just going in for some kind of surgical procedure. How are you able to lead a somewhat normal young adulthood, collegiate life, and now adulthood? I question that every day. <laughs> so I think growing up, I again, I think it was a blessing in disguise that one, I did not know any different, meaning this was my life from day one. So I never knew what life could be otherwise. So I, I kind of thought this is part of the course. And, and two, I have this mindset of it's part of me. It's not going to drive me. It's not going to define me, but it's part of me. And I'm not going to let it be a burden, but rather how can I use it in a positive way, in a driving force and, and helping me move forward. And, and I think me trying to always move forward and never really looking back has been a great coping mechanism as well as a curse because it does catch up with you at a point because um, things happen quite frequently and things the infections are not occurrences that you can sit on you have to move fast doctors have to move fast decisions have to be made you have to go to the OR quickly if necessary uh, so I it was just kind of second nature that 
okay, I'm just going to bury that experience and go to the next. And hey, I have a science Olympiad competition this weekend. I'm going to focus on that. And I always had something opposite to look forward to. And I was grateful to have the the social support as well as the friend community, the spend the nights. Granted, you know, my first spend the night was in fourth grade. And my dad was right there the, probably the whole night, right until right when we went to sleep. But a, a, gradually we got the courage to do some of the activities that all kids do. I didn't swim for a long time because you're not supposed to get the ivy line wet. And we have a pool, so that was an interesting time. But we did. We still did those activities because it was more important for us to live, just live. And, and now in my 30s, as I understand desire to grow and mental health, now I'm kind of processing a lot of what has happened in the past and, and the just medical trauma, to be really frank. And, and the truth is, it's a chronic disease. So that accept, acceptance of this chronicity uh, helped a lot. However, that doesn't happen overnight. And once I accepted that chronicity and accepted, like, this is what is happening today. I will always be a complex case. I was, I am, and I will be. That is helping me keep on going because there's always something going on, unfortunately. Um, I do have a chronic disease and there's, as I get older, different things pop up and we have to take care of them. But I think just this drive to keep on moving forward and the drive to live. Upon completing your high school career, you made the decision to come to UAB. Mm -hmm. Why UAB? Why didn't you stay at home at UAH or go to some other colleges that may have been closer, almost in the backyard? Mm. Well, I never put limitations on myself, period. I never even thought about going to school closer to home. I applied all across the country. I had really high ambitions and I did, I have since I was in grade school, I probably, um, I always eat, <laughs> eat with my eyes in all aspects of life. Uh, and I had a vision and I thought UAB is where I can do what I, dream to do. And at that time, truly, I was going to be a doctor. And I was the Indian who went <laughs> and majored in biology and wanted to be a doctor and just kind of checked all the boxes, even though I truly did not know when I when I did enter. But it was it was the best experience. Looking back, it was the best experience I could have had and best decision I could have made. But oh, there's no ch option to go to stay at home or be close to home. I wanted to travel. You mentioned that you started out wanting to go into medicine. You were majoring in biology. That changed. Things shifted and you wind up as an undergrad studying psychology. <laughs> yeah. Why the transition? So this is my first lesson in life where sometimes we get laughed at when we make too many plans and we have to kind of let life happen. I went into college, right? I took all the pre-med classes. I was ready to take the MCAT. And I actually not changed from biology to biopsychology and it was a design major. And that's partly because I, I did not do well in genetics and I did not enjoy it and it was very hard. 
and I was I was looking at the course load for biology and thought I need some psychology in there. I think I, I, I enjoyed, I looked at the coursework for psychology and enjoyed that as much more, but there was still some biology courses that I, I wanted to take. So I went to my advisor and said, can I just design this major? And this was, I think at the cusp or right before neuroscience major being developed. And to be honest, neuroscience would have been the perfect major. But right when I decided to do that, and I also was going to do a five-year MPH uh, master's on, after my undergrad. I decided to have one more surgery in the summer between my sophomore and junior years of college and really thought and purposely scheduled it at that time thinking, oh, this will be my last surgery, my last hospitalization. This will make me free of IVs and tubes. Because I think even though I accepted that chronicity of this disease deep down, I really wanted to be like my peers and, and not be connected if I didn't have to be. Unfortunately, it resulted in complications after complications. And uh, we had to go to different doctors across the country seeking subspecialists, getting second opinions. I ended up having more surgery in the fall of my junior year. And I had to just change my whole course load at that point. And it was obvious that it was going to be too much on me to still do this design major, be on campus when my health was is taking a lot of time to figure out on what the next step is and that next step will be a big will be a big toll on my body. And UAB really thank thankfully like my advisor the dean of the College of Arts and Sciences I mean my honors advisor the director of the honors program they all came together to help me still graduate given this bump in the road and the solution was okay, do you mind transferring to just psychology where we've actually created an online degree for psychology. You only have X amount more credits to do, take them online and uh, we can work with you on your thesis from, so I actually went to UAH <laughs> to, uh, to get my advisor for my thesis and to do my research for my thesis. And my advisors were both from, my research advisors were both from Huntsville as well as UAB. And together uh, I was able to defend my undergrad honors thesis and still graduate. As a sophomore going into your junior year, you're an honors college student. You're in the College of Arts and Sciences. You're going through all of these medical issues that you're hoping to improve your lifestyle. How frustrating was that time for you? Because it couldn't have been easy. Oh, man. You know, I don't wish the complications that I had on my worst enemy. I had fistulas, which meant that abnormally my small intestine, large intestine, and skin were all connected, also all connected to my bladder. So I was urinating food and bile, food and bile was also coming just spontaneously onto my skin nonstop. I mean, you, don't, you didn't know when it would happen. And we were desperate to figure out the next step. And I was only 21, 22 years old. It felt like 
literally my whole life had just kind of come to an end. And it seem, seems dramatic to say that now, 10 years later. But at that time, I thought there's no moving forward. I, I truly wanted to give up. I was in such tremendous pain and I felt raw both outside on my body with the bile is is uh, full of acid and so it's it's burning your skin or leaving your skin raw but also on the inside had lost motivation to keep on moving forward most days were in bed just sopping up the drainage i would have a few maybe 30 minutes to go take a shower but then just to get wet again with my own drainage and I couldn't go to college and all my peers, I think one of the hardest parts, and because we're human, we do compare ourselves to others, even though we're told every day not to. But I was 22 years old and all my peers that I started college with and were such close friends with were almost finishing college. I mean, they were in their last year. And I tried to live vicariously through them, but I still was jealous <laughs> and seeing them graduate while I was still at home and not even close to graduating was also very hard. And I learned something in that time period because I was also just in and out of the hospital. And I even told the doctors like, discharge me, but only discharge me if you're never gonna bring me back. Because I was just I was ready for ultimatums because it was so hard to go back and forth versus I'll stay if it means I'll come out better or or don't even put me in for the first in the first place. And in one of those hospitalizations, I was told that because I said I wanted to give up and, and my friend said, sure, give up. That's fine. And I was really surprised. Like, why would what? How aren't you going to call psych on me? I mean, I'm at that point. And they said, no. And they taught me how you can give up. You can pause. You can feel the emotions, but to not get stuck in that feeling and that uh, in that moment and to to find the ability to keep on moving forward, but the importance is to feel that pain. So it, it came finally in my 20s, it hit me where I had to process things more. It, and I did my best to try to find time in the day to call friends from college, uh, to talk to them, to even message with people on social media, just to feel like I do have glimpses of life and it's not all consumed by gauze and drainage and uh, feeling like I'm in a hospital bed in my own house. But I had some of my lowest, lowest moments at that point. But you also had success and you achieved great things. You graduated very highly in your class. You gave the commencement address. I mean, how much were those kind of a validation to the time that you put in to your degree and the challenges that you had along the way. Yeah, I, it did feel good. I, I'm not gonna lie to to just come out of it all and come out of it in a way where I ended up finding a love for public speaking through that one talk and didn't really realize it. And I think that's where my value and validation comes from. I would have put the hard work in either way, no matter what the course of my health was. Uh, and I struggled through some of those classes. Psychology online is not easy, but it, it felt 
that it felt like you do not have to go the traditional route. And I think, and I felt like I, it was okay to break the mold. Personally, I grew up in a way where you have to do things in this order. I thought so. You have to do things in this order and uh, you have to do it in a like a, a certain sequence and a certain timeline. So for me, looking back, that's really what that represents to me in the sense that because of especially the amount of pain that I had seeing my friends graduate and I wasn't there with them, that hurt a lot and that took a lot of time to get over. So now I tell people like your time will come. That's what that helped me learn and process that that timeline is, it's just a timeline. It doesn't fit for everybody and that's okay. And because of the support from UAB faculty, my honors director, advisor, the dean, student affairs, I can name their names and they know their gratitude or my gratitude for them is, is why I was able to achieve and also graduate with as the commencement speaker because they also recognized and I, I always will appreciate them for that. You didn't graduate from UAB with just the one degree, not just the undergrad, but you also came back and got yeah. a master in public health. Mm -hmm. Why that route and how has that kind of shaped who you are today as a professional? Once I decided that I didn't want to be a doctor in about my freshman or sophomore year of college, I shifted to public health. One, I, my mind was blown when I was at UAB that there's more things to do in medicine than be a doctor, first of all. And I immediately started liking public health. I think be, one, because I, um, well, I love people, but two, I love looking at the bigger picture and population health really, I acclimated to it. Then my undergrad honors project was in food security and uh, teaching math and STEM to a, a school that has under underprivileged children. A majority of their, the population is underprivileged. And then that led me to the public health school because I talked to a public health professor about it. So then I just kept on getting public health information uh, kind of talked to me and um, put into my brain. But I wanted to make sure that that was it. And I wanted to make sure what route, what specialty, what focus, what concentration I wanted to do at pub in public health. So after college, I first had the small intestine transplant. That was the plan um, or to graduate and then do the transplant. And thankfully I did well. It did take a, a whole nother recovery and a whole nother set of um, internal strength. But then I went to uh, DC and did an internship uh, on Capitol Hill advocating for healthcare policies as it relates to rare diseases and did a internship at the local hospital here in Huntsville in administration because I knew I, I wanted to still be close to the medicine side. And, I, and it was really the transplant, actually. It was really the transplant where it was just kind of thrown in my face that the patient voice is not heard as it should be. And the healthcare system is dysfunctional, but it's also run by humans. And at the end of the day, how can like the patient as a human, the clinician as a human work together better? So that's where I thought from a health policy standpoint, as well as a health administration 
uh, standpoint, I wanted to go further in my education. And, and so I did those two internships that solidified my desire to go into those fields. And then UAB was an option, uh, partly because of what I did in undergrad through my honors program. And so they welcomed me back 10 years later uh, and then got the degree and then the pandemic happened. So what can you as Swapna Kakani do in your mind to help shape health policy in the coming years? <laughs> That's a tough question. Uh, I've never gotten that question before. So what I hope and what we're working on at the, at least at the state level is I think a, a lot of, or a, one part of policy is education. And uh, our leaders, our legislators, our elect, excuse me, our elected leaders, a lot of times do not know how the constituents are being affected by the the policy or the lack of a policy. And oftentimes it's the constituent that knows best or knows what they need because they're living the life. And I think it, it applies very much so in, in healthcare policy. So what we're doing, at least at the state level, is we're building coalitions to bring the rare disease community together to advocate for some of the healthcare policies that have actually been passed in some other states and we're behind in, in doing so and really making sure that the voices from not only the patient voice, but the clinician voice, the researcher, the payer, it's really powerful to get voices from multiple avenues speaking on the same topic towards the same agenda that can i believe that that really can help push the target forward or or in this case pass the policy or at least build up some regulation to help and thus far we just haven't had that kind of voice at least for the rare disease community in the state and so i hope to to change that and improve that. That's Swapna Kakani. Swapna is a two-time UAB graduate and alumna of the Honors College. She earned her BS in psychology from the College of Arts and Sciences in 2014 before obtaining her MPH in healthcare organization and policy from the School of Public Health in 2020. In 2017, Swapna founded Alabama Rare, a grassroots coalition that unites and provides support for individuals and families within Alabama's rare disease population. She's also a professional speaker and healthcare advocate. This member of the Psy Chai National Psychology Honor Society and Phi Kappa Phi National Honor Society definitely has an idea of what it means to be a blazer. To be a blazer means to, I think to be a very a cognizant and aware person of their surroundings, meaning that one is okay learning what they need to learn, sharing what they know, and bring those open ears for anyone to their family, their local community, the society, and the world. And I think we need more of Blazers uh, today to to keep this like driving force and this positivity of 
continuing to move forward. Be sure to listen into previous episodes of UAB Green and Told. Check out our website at alumni.uab.edu slash green and told. Have a story to share or know someone we need to get in touch with? Email greenandtold at uab.edu. Finally, be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just search UAB Alumni. Thanks for listening, and until next time, go Blazers!